Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Saturn Vox podcast, where discussions of philosophy meet the liminal space we weave in dreams. This is your host, emphatic lover of music and part-time critical theorist, Michaela Ann. This week, we are welcoming guest Nika Danilova, the musician, artist, and magical practitioner otherwise known as Zola Jesus. Throughout the course of this interview, Nika and I explore the cathartic process of ritual expression, which extends itself synonymously through art, music, and magic. Due to our shared political standing and love of Adorno, we also find space to weave in conversations on the importance of such an expression to combat the ill effects of a capitalist culture which seeks only to consume. How might one use art as an antidote to a commodified world? What does it mean to be a missionary for nature? How does community storytelling re-enliven our engagement with the various ecologies of the world? What is there to gain through relinquishing control? All this and more on today's episode of Saturn Vox. Just a note for those of you who listen all the way to the end. There was a bit of an internet malfunction which occurred during the recording process and resulted in the loss of the last few minutes or so of our interview. Luckily, we only lost the pleasantries in which Nika and I thank each other for creating together in this shared space and say goodbye, but please do not feel too taken aback when the interview ends somewhat abruptly. To find more on SaturnVox, check out their Instagram and Twitter at SaturnVox, or visit their website www.saturnvox.com. If you wish to support the show towards goals of better equipment, merch, and bonus material, please check out the Patreon at www.patreon.com SaturnVox, where one can join in on our book club and Discord communities. Thanks for having me. Um, happy to be here. Yeah, I make music as Zola Jesus. I've been doing it for about like 12 years now. And um, it's my life, but I'm also a very magically inclined person. I've had like my ebbs and flows that have led me to a very magical practice in my um, current life. And so I'm happy to talk about all of that with you today. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, let's start there. Like, in in what ways has your life grown into a more magical practice? Well, um, I went from growing up as a child feeling very inclined and drawn towards magic and witchcraft and, you know, the occult. And then I had this period as a young adult where I was pushing against it and kind of more interested in, like, the rational, natural world, um quote-unquote natural world I say that now knowing the, the nature of things but um but then as my life started to unwind and unravel and fall apart I really ended up needing to rely or lean on magic in order to find some 
sense of control or stability throughout it. And, you know, it was there for me when I needed it. And then it really, you know, it occurred to me, or I realized that magic is definitely very much a part of who I am, who I've always been and in the world around me. Yeah, and I can kind of see that in some of the things that you were talking about on social media as you were getting ready to release your most recent album, Archon, there was a lot of conversation about tuning out other kinds of influence and returning to like an ancestral roots or the sort of like folk practice of the Balkan region. Do you think you could give us a little bit of commentary on how all of that fit together? Yeah, I mean, my my whole practice is pretty syncretic just by nature of, you know, having access to all of the information in the world. <laughs> but um, like my my personal practice developed when I moved back to the woods. So I grew up in northern Wisconsin in the countryside um, on 150 acres of forest. And um, then I, you know, I was desperate to get out. And so I moved to the city and then I moved to L.A. and Seattle. And I ended up feeling like really missing my my family and my roots and, and the quiet of the woods. And so I moved back to the land where I grew up, built a house and um, having a really intimate, you know, and familial connection with land has been something that has been really eye opening for me. And it allowed me to witness just like nature and magic taking place kind of like day in and day out. Um, Cause I don't really leave that. Like when I'm touring and stuff, I'll, I'll leave the house. But when I'm home, I have a very interior life. Like um, my creative pra- practice and everything is very, very much about my, my internal world and my inner vision. And so I don't leave the house much, but you know, when I, I'll leave my house to go walk in the woods, but not necessarily to like participate in society and stuff. And so I started bonding with the woods and bonding with the the plants and everything and, and just the land and the dirt and really realizing how, what a rich relationship that is to have. It's interesting because there's this tie in with magic will and like discovering the will and the noise of the city and the noise of social society kind of distracting from one's ability to tap into something creatively authentic, that it almost sounds like you felt like you were able to reconnect to that authenticity by returning to roots. Absolutely. Yeah, in returning to the place where I it's literally the place where I grew up. And so it's, it's quite literally my roots and um, it's, you know, family land and returning to it allowed me to be able to shed a lot of my like societal conditioning and to really like, you know, become feral again (laughs) and to just enjoy like the, the fundamental processes that made me who I am. Oh, it's so beautiful. It sounds amazing. I love what you said about uh, kind of becoming feral again, kind of makes me think about this intersection between virility, the isolation and loneliness of the witch, helping to create 
that um, artistic process within the soul. Yeah, I mean, that's also why I love Baba Yaga um, so much. Um, it's because she represents this this kind of separate intermediary existence between like the real world and this other world. Um, and in some ways, it's kind of like shamanic how she straddles these two worlds. But at the same time, she has so much power and she has power to do good and help the children that wander into the woods needing her help. But she also has power to do bad, like if you don't do it, she asks, she's going to cook you for dinner, you know? <laughs> so I kind of, I like that, um, that archetype because I think there's an aspect of there's, you know, I think we need people that live on the fringes and metabolize our, like our more, um, mythological aspects or something into art or, you know, Baba Yaga. <laughs> <laughs> I love Baba Yaga as well. I love her little house and the and the chicken feet. I want one for she's myself. So, yeah, she's such a little creep. <laughs> I bet her soup is tasty too. I'm sure it is. So how do then does this virility and this reclamation of self agency through connection to land play into to your identity as an artist as well as a witch. Yes. Um, Cause I think to be a witch, you have to be feral because there's aspects of witchcraft and magic that are just so primal in a way and fundamental. And there's an aspect of that, that like if you try to um, sanitize it or, or make it more palatable, you lose some of the real energy that's in those like very raw aspects of ritual and stuff. Absolutely. So I definitely connect with that a lot. I think that in order to be a powerful, I think there's an aspect of like being a powerful mediator between the two worlds where you kind of have to, you can't become totally civilized. Um, because if you, if you give up that, that feral nature, you also give up that connection to, you know, feral earth, which is I would consider to be the, the, the truest form of earth. It's like, you know, very elemental. Oh, yes. I love that because nature is scary. That's Baba Yaga is scary. And, and just as much as it can be gentle and kind, it can also be very dangerous. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's unforgiving. The nature, nature in its essence is unforgiving, which is why humans have banded together and collectivized to create technologies that insulate us from nature because it is it is crude and cruel you know it can be so what do you think that we as a society have like lost by trying to dominate nature as opposed to say living harmoniously with it I feel like we've lost like 50% of ourselves because you know in terms of in, in trying to dominate nature you're also um refusing the the spiritual essence that's found within nature and I think our kind of like um mental supremacy in our contemporary world is very like anti-spiritual and in the same way it's anti-nature it's just trying to conquer the things that like are deemed inhospitable or don't make sense aren't rational um and I find that to be like really dangerous. And so I think that we're actually losing parts of ourselves by not in integrating more um, with nature. 
It's almost as if um, the more that we try to embody purity or these ideas of like domination and purity, there is like an Apollyon, you know, solar state in that, this like enlightenment era that has given us a lot of lovely things, but the catch is that we lose that Dionysian aspect of the solar. We lose that ability to have like inspiration and imagination because now we're all trying to conform to some sort of safety measure and domination in and of itself implies a unity and conformity to something. Absolutely. Like there's, I think so much of imagination comes from the unknowns and Nature is full of unknowns, like the the natural disasters. There's things you just can't control over it. And um, that's why I think, like, art is such, like, um, it's it's like the, um, what do I say? Sometimes I feel like I'm, like, a missionary for nature. (laughs) And art, in a way, does that because it it metabolizes just existence in, in a way that allows us to be able to engage with it. Um, and that's why mythology is also important. Um, but that's like a whole different thing, but yeah, I don't know this, this contemporary world, <laughs> we're just missing, we're missing a lot. We're missing a lot. You know, I love what you said about nature's power and it, it made me think of, you know, when you're singing a song and you're really emotively connecting into it and now you're wailing and you've created these like crescendos and arpeggios of texture in the music sound in a way that is your own personal tempest. And so you are channeling the elemental forces in your music in that way. Yeah. I mean, even just using the voice, it's such an act of defiance to resonate your body with your voice for no other reason than because it feels good or sounds good, you know? And I think that's like such a beautiful way of just using, that's why I love the voice, the human voice and why I'm primarily feel like I'm a singer is because it's just our most, like it's, it's our fundamental instrument. It's like the instrument (laughs) and it's using, it's using just our bodies and, and trying to not dominate them, but to use it to create beauty, which I think is like what humanity wishes that they could find within humanism, but instead we just go for like domination. <laughs> oh, that was lovely. I love that. That art should, should be beautiful as opposed to dominating. Um, and this is actually something Adorno talks about. If we want to segue into a little bit of Adorno, <laughs> yeah. just that, you know, there is this idea that, just that when we dominate, we have to conform. And then when we conform, we can no longer create art just for pleasure's sake. We can only create art for commodity's sake. And then that removes us from actual catharsis within the art, which is the true inspired state. Yeah, definitely. And as a musician, I, I love Adorno because he does he's one of the few people that writes and thinks very critically about music as um, like a cultural reflection of like our greater, you know, situation. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I think, I think that's, that's very true. And and that's, I think it's funny how Adorno, 
he said something like, you know, like the, the minute we started recording performances, like performance died, music died, because there's no longer this sense of like present uh, presence with the music and with art as like this very experiential thing. You know, it becomes something to be reflected back on in a way that and controlled and commodified, of course. Mm, oh, and this ties so well into our commentary on magic, actually, because it is a removal of the feral. And it is a, a removal of that agency to just be ecstatic in that moment and make art for art's sake. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, art, art is in a I feel like art is is magic in that way. It's like you're you're able to take these elements of earth and recombine them in a way that just makes it even more striking, you know? It's powerful. So how do you try to combat these implied capitalist, you know, expectations of the artist? How do you supplement that in your own work, is it something that you use magic to give reestablish agency for yourself or maybe mysticism to just like work it all out in your heart or like what is the process there? <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, it's it's getting harder every day. It's, you know, it's like 10 years ago, this being a independent musician as a, you know, professional independent musician made more sense. Um it doesn't make as much sense as it used to from like a uh, professional point of view or like in terms of like commodifying it. So I actually use magic as a means of renegotiating my own relationship to my art, um, to create magically, to create with magical intentions, to be a, um, to bear the, the wisdom uh, that I'm learning through all my different magical practices and to use music as a way of bringing them to people and um I I'm playing around with like creating like live like musical rituals as well like because I I feel like as an artist in this day and age I I have a responsibility I, can, I have a choice I can either do the whole thing where I try to game Spotify and get in the algorithm and become <laughs> some like <laughs> reggaeton artist or something for self-preservation or I, you know, I understand where we're at in the world and I use art because for me, it's, you know, it's my language and I want to use it in order to communicate a better world. And by doing that, I'm, I want to synthesize the wisdom that I've learned through, you know, my own experience, magical experience and otherwise to, to, to try to be an antidote to that other thing. Like people want to, not not people, but I feel like society and capitalism wants to extract music purely as this like commodified value. And I want to do everything that I can to save it, to be, the, to do the opposite, you know, to be the other binary. It's like to, to re-engage like the, the real like power of music and art. And so I use magic, I think, to try to do that. Oh, lovely. So when you, so was that the thought process then behind, I'm not going to listen to, you know, my normal favorite musicians or like pop music while I'm writing Archon, I'm like only going to listen to 
music that was meant for community sharing within like an ancestral context and like because I remember you talking about that yeah so I'm just wondering if that was a part of this magical commitment within the creation of the Archon album definitely and um I was so before I made Archon I was so cynical about you know, being a professional musician, writing music, putting it out, the whole thing. It's such like a, it's actually a very unfulfilling, there's a very, very little reward right now at being a musician. And so, um, I didn't want to make an album that was going to exist in that world that felt so unfulfilling to me. I wanted to rediscover like the most precious aspects of music for, for myself. And for me, that's, you know, folk, I love folk music and I love Eastern European, um, choral and folk music because it's, it's music as a utility for social bonding and for, you know, activism, for disseminating, um, political ideas, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. folk music was a, a real social glue and, uh, you know, I loved that women would be, you know, processing or harvesting grapes to make wine and they'd be singing these songs. And that's the nature of music to me that is that we can't lose. It's the the thing. It's like at the end of the day, it's like, why did the first human start singing? Where did the song come from? Why does the song exist in the first place? It's for self-soothing. It's for bonding, all these things. So that became much more interesting to me than. I'm going to make something that fits in the algorithm and, you know, it's a very like cynical way of making music that I think we're encouraged to do these days because it's the only way to really succeed. But I I want, I I don't want that. Like I want the other thing. (laughs) And so I didn't want to listen to any music that, that felt like that pressured me into that context because um, I just didn't want to be influenced by it. And so I just was, I just listened to a lot of folk music and, traditional music and classical and stuff it's interesting to contemplate how little things like that can really like shape the intention of a ritual or or the intention of a spell uh not even like something that seems overtly witchy but just directing your attention on things that make your soul feel as you say more fulfilled can in and of itself be magic. Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's a type of magic that I think is just like, what are you doing it for? What do you really want to happen? And it's like, I don't necessarily use magic as a means of getting rich or getting things like greed or anything. For me, it's about establishing, like going deeper into my own relationship with the world and with existence and having um being able to communicate with these energies that are all around us and yeah it kind of sounds a little woo but (laughs) but that to (laughs) me is like the power of magic it's about being able to harness and and have like a conversation with aspects of earth that we don't necessarily acknowledge yeah, I think that's lovely. I mean, everything has a a vibration, right? Everything makes a sound, everything makes a song. Even from a like quantum physics perspective, we've basically already proven that everything is just sound. Even if 
our brain perceives it as a visual image for whatever loop-de-loop reason. So was the album intended as a ritual? Was it intended as a cathartic expression of like healing? Like I want to break out of this, it, it liberate me, liberate and hopefully liberate others through the the power of sound. Um, well, at the time, I was really I had a really bad writer's block. Um, I had just gone through like a divorce, and I I almost lost like everything. <laughs> <laughs> and um it was just a really stressful time and at the same time I was feeling very like um creatively blocked because the pressure to make something was just like insurmountable in a way and so I ended up getting together with my friend Randall Dunn who's this amazing producer and we started working together on the album you know he'd go through my demos and and we'd start sharing things and He's a really incredible guy, also very, very magical being and deeply spiritual. And so it was the process of making Archon became more of like this healing medicine for me to get through the period of life that I was in. Um, And it was not about how it sounded and it's not about what you hear on the record. Like that was just the outcome or the product of my own journey. And it was for me, it was the times that I were in, I was in the studio and I was able to get out of myself and out of my body and to be creative with somebody else and to share that healing process. Um, though that is the record to me. And then what you hear is just like, that's just the, the receipt of, of what happened. And so it's not as much about like, I wanted to create something that reflected all these things. It's just like, I made the record with the intention of healing myself and then, you know, what we get is what we get. So, <laughs> yeah. No, that's beautiful. It's like using the power of uh, ecstatic expression of sound and art to create beauty and maybe a little bit of angst and like express myself emotionally in a way that society doesn't normally allow. Um and then that in and of itself creates a ripple in the people that listen to it, even if the words or the the message of the songs themselves don't reflect that one-to-one. Yeah, and that, I think that's a kind of, for me, it was a magical process. It was a ritualistic process because it's always, it's not about the result. You don't get the result from analysis you get the result from like energetic presence and so in doing that you have to you have to kind of surrender to to like the moment the ritual the you know you have to give yourself into it in order to get the thing at the end instead of meticulously trying to you know analyze your way through to the end product like that's what feels very magical to me is about just like relinquishing control in the moment and letting the energy create the outcome. Mm. Oh, I love this. (laughs) I mean, I just want to say like, it sounds like what you, you attempted to do is extremely brave because you're a, a professional independent musician. This is your livelihood. Everybody around you is saying it needs to sound like this or it needs to be marketed in such and such a way or it needs to be palatable in such and such a way for you to continue on this path of success. 
And you said, how about no? How about I just n not even think about the audience? <laughs> how about I think about my, my own ecstatic state and we'll, we'll see what happens? Yeah. <laughs> so brave, honestly. Oh, thank you. Do you, you. think that the... Oh, you're welcome. Do you think that, like, your time spent kind of isolated then and having this, like, more commitment to your nature relationships as opposed to human relationships, is that what helped support that bravery? I definitely think it did to an extent because when I... Living in, in nature or living in the woods, I see just... um how little you need to survive <laughs> kind of like, you know, we think we need all of these things because when you live in a city, you rely on the infrastructure and you rely, you need a car. And, but when you're an animal, you just need the woods. Like it's easy. It makes sense to me. And it's kind of like everything should be, should be that simple. You know, <laughs> it shouldn't, we, I shouldn't have to have this much fear about what I create in order to survive because at the end of the day, it's like, um, it doesn't take that much to survive. Like life is, is supported by nature in a, in a way to an extent. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was tough though. Oh yeah. I, I can, I can imagine there were probably a lot of, uh, anxiety driven nights <laughs> intermingling with the ecstasy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's hard to give up control. It's the one thing that I, I can't do. And I had to do it and I'm glad that I did because now I see that giving up control is letting letting the world work with you instead of trying to work against it. So so when you say like give up control, in your own opinion, who do you relinquish the control to? Is this like a submittance to your higher self, a, a submission to the all being or like what is your theological framework here? Um... I think it's more of like the unconscious. I'm really into Jung and I think the unconscious, especially in the creative process, like you need the unconscious if you're going to make something that's going to surprise you, you know, um, I can make music and songs all day long, but they won't necessarily be interesting to me because there isn't this like the spark of the unknown within them. But when you give up control, you give up control to the muse, to the unconscious, to this other thing that is stored within you I feel and then when you give up control you let this other thing take over and um, that's when it gets interesting but you can't force it and you can't make it happen you just have to let go and that's I don't know it's kind of abstract but that's kind of what I learned yeah I mean so it's that the process of becoming feral in order to be a conduit of the muses. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially what uh, ancient, like, oracle prophetesses used to do as well, in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's important to learn to have a, a vehicle for it, um, in a way. Like, for me, my vehicle is my, my technical ability and my experience in the medium, but once you get to a point where you can trust that, you can just let things flow through you in a way where you don't need to think about it as much. It's like you're able to be a vehicle for something greater. Yeah. Oh, okay. This is great segue into um, 
we've been talking a lot about the virility, the unconscious, this like dynastic act of self-expression. I think there's a lot of connection between the witch and his or her connection to madness. And I think there's that same intersection between the musician and the artist and madness. So I like what you said about this having a container, even if it is just the grounding of my technical knowledge or the grounding of like an understanding of how these programs work or how to compose music, kind of creating the saturnal boundaries that kind of give you the safety to have that moment of madness. Because if there is no container, you run this like weird risk that all magicians, all artists, all poets, all musicians run this risk of kind of falling off the deep end of madness when they do relinquish this control like you're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, I think you can probably do it going in raw, you know, <laughs> like not having the skills. <laughs> but I I grew, I grew up, um, you know, wanting to become an opera singer. So I'm, I'm trained in, in, in um, operatic singing. And also trained in in music. And so, you know, I used to feel like that was holding me back. But then once I realized that it's, yeah, like you said, it's, it's the container that allows me to let go because you have the language learned. And so what comes through will be contained in one way or another. Um, It's not going, yeah, you're not going to end up kind of spiraling in a way. I like the limitations. I'm also, I, I've got a Saturn um, stellium or a Capricorn stellium. So um, I do feel very Saturnian in that respect. Like I love the discipline of skill. <laughs> you know, it, t- it takes a Capricorn to give as much attention to the perfection of those minute details from the bottom up the way that a lot of your music does come across and the layers of texture and the layers of sound and emotion I I totally see that (laughs) so to what level then do you feel like I mean if we're going to be talking about Saturn and and we've been talking about music as healing and madness this level of like suffering suffering due to society suffering due to my inability to be authentic or suffering for any number of reasons do you think suffering becomes an implied necessity in order to create beauty because of the need to paint that emotion out either through song or word dance or visual art in and of itself hmm I wonder I wonder if you need suffering because I don't necessarily think so but then but then at the same time I do feel like making art or being an artist someone that needs to make art can be sort of pathological (laughs) to to an extent um like you know as a professional musician it doesn't I don't feel like I'm I can exist without that outlet in my life so there's an aspect of suffering there where there's like this compulsion to need to do this thing that doesn't really make sense in like the practicalities of being alive, you know? And in that way, I do suffer because I, sometimes I just want to be <laughs> a normal person who doesn't 
need to have this weird thing and, and constantly express themselves emotionally um, in order to be satisfied with, with being alive. But uh, here we are, you know. So, yeah, maybe there is an aspect of suffering that is just innate to being an artist. Well, it just it's an idea I've been playing with just that like we need the malefic impulse or we like need the malefic energy because if I was compliant in my life and and just felt totally satisfied even aesthetically with my life would I have the drive to create mm. yeah I've realized that and I have a song on my record called desire because I realized I'm very that's my that's my motivation is desire. Um, and so as I move through life, I, I move based on things that I desire to feel or experience. Um, and so there is desire comes from, can come from a place of lack, you know, it's you're desiring something you don't have. And so there is something there that, that keeps one going. That is kind of malefic in a way. Uh, speaking of malefics, I've been wanting to ask you where the name Archon came from. Like, what was what was your thought process behind that? The OG, the OG Malefics, the Archons. Um, yeah, it came from basically being alive in 2020, 2021. Um, and now here, 2022, a lot of Archons running, running amok in in our lives. And, um, it, it just reminded me the past couple of years have reminded me a lot about Gnosticism and the, you know, the Gnostic conception of humanity and, um, the archons themselves being reflected in, in the billionaires and the leaders of the world and the, just the, the rampant corruption in our governments it just feels like we're living in very archonic times right now. It seems like you're, from, based off of like your explanation of where the record came from, your record was a big middle finger to the Archons. Like, I won't <laughs> let you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, I felt kind of weird naming it Archon because I'm like, do I want to give them that power? But then I was like, oh, no, it's, it's, it's just, it's the records. It was made in Archonic times <laughs> and... You can't separate the pro the process that I went through while making the record with like the world. I had to put my record on hold for a year because of COVID, and then with the election and everything else going on in the world, it was just such heightened emotional mania that during mm -hmm. that period that I felt like I was going insane, um, and so it was just just had to be named it. <laughs> I like that. I, I hope that it inspired a lot of like non-magically inclined people to to look up Gnosticism, which is something that I, I do wish more people at least knew about. Me too. I think it would help contextualize um, this whole mess for, for a lot of people. <laughs> Me as well. So just in case... There are followers listening to this episode who aren't super well-versed in Gnosticism or know exactly what the Archons are. Do you mind just giving us your own explanation of that? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I would say that Archons are these malevolent beings 
that are, you know, infiltrating humanity and corrupting like the, the, the pure harmonious spirit of humanity with these like very, yeah, again, malevolent forces. So then these like deceptors, they are basically like entities that facilitate the various illusions that humanity is is ruled under, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, so that ties in really well with Adorno's idea of things like, say, the culture industry being a top-down industry. And those who who are subject to it then are forced to live under the illusion or delusion that is announced by such an entity right i would i would say yeah <laughs> i think you explained it perfectly <laughs> well i'm just wondering like was when you are making your commentaries on gnosticism or you're making your commentaries on adorno did you like think about the way that they related to each other? Or was this just like a spontaneous, you know, syncretic, authentic expression of your will? I, I mean, I'm really interested in power structures and I'm very anti-authoritarian and, um, and <laughs> anti-capitalist. So those things just lead me to the same conclusions and then I'll discover you know, some writing or, or I'll put pieces together and be like, yep, yep, yes. <laughs> you know, reading Adorno, I'm just like, highlight, highlight, highlight. Why is no one talking about this? <laughs> um, but it, it just really all, all makes sense. So, so with Adorno, then, do you ever have any issues with like, because he was very anti-pop culture uh, across the board, like, like you said, he said, as soon as we started performing music, we were already fucked. <laughs> and, yeah. like, there are whole essays that he wrote that are, like, jazz is the devil. You know, jazz is the worst thing that's ever happened to music. And I live in New Orleans, so that's, like, a very blasphemous thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't agree with it, even though I agree with his political philosophy. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's no one that I read where I'm like, everything they say is perfect, you know, where but it's like having someone that is I mean, number one, I'm a real like, I love classical music. And so does he. And so, you know, we get along in that respect. I don't hate jazz. I think the jazz stuff is off base. But I think he was just being a bit of a reactionary at the time. Um, and um, yeah, I, I can't I can't excuse that. But, uh, you know, I think the way he looked at culture from a, like a Marxist point of view is so valuable. And um, some 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 things that he said, you know, is, but also makes me think of like someone like Marshall McLuhan or some or or, you know, even just like Marx, you know, or um, Deleuze and Guattari, like these people that 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 criticize the cultural implications of capitalism um, I'm just like, I'm, I'm all for, but, uh, you know, I take, I take the good stuff and leave, leave the bad stuff. I'm not there to defend that. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's, we should all practice critical thinking in that way. I think you're, yeah. you're absolutely right about that. Um, what I thought was super interesting about his work, what was like, if you, you can think about it in line with 
Crowley's philosophy or actually Crowley was not the first person to say love under will like love is the law but most magicians know it from him so I just found it to be very profound in that way because it is this idea of like right now the person that you're allowing tell you what you want, what you're interested in, what your music taste is, is all dictated by these corporate entities, which you could view as archons. And you then think that it's your will and it takes this work of isolation, of moving to the woods, of giving into dynastic, ecstatic experiences for you to reorganize within yourself, like, what is my true will versus what has society just been wanting me to consume? Yes. Yeah, that was hu- a huge process for me, like, deconditioning um, after I'm, I got out of the city, um, and I'm, I'm not saying you can't do it in the city, but I'm always like, what is who, what am I? And then what is it? You know, I want to, to understand, you know, maybe again, it's like my Mercury and Taurus, like, it's like, I want to <laughs> understand things from a very fundamental point of view, as it relates to me and not the the conditioning or the influence of the outside world, because I don't necessarily trust their um their perspective or their their like angle you know and I mean again like I grew up in the woods I'm not like libertarian but I grew up in a that mindset of like leave like sure. isolation um and so isolation can provide clarity very often especially the clarity of you know survival and all of those things but um yeah yeah, I, I think it's important to understand for yourself what what's true for you outside of what like industries and corporations are trying to tell you. Because there's so much manufactured consent, like more than ever on the internet and, you know, Twitter and social media, there's just so much manufactured consent about what we're told. This is this is what you need to care about. This is this is the reality. These are the things that that are happening. And and it's up to you to, to determine whether or not that is valid or that is relevant to you. Yeah, absolutely. I like what you said about, like, it's it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, and that I'm not just considering, just because we're saying find what's authentic to you doesn't mean fuck the other, fuck everybody else. There's still sort of a, a, a communal aspect to what you were describing and... I think there's that is implicit in the in the drive of the artist as well, right? Because artists want to share. They want mm-hmm. to share what they created. It's not meant to be put in a shrine in their bedroom closet for only them to look at. Um, do you have any like commentary on I guess like performing the art on sharing with the other where you meet that tension between the creation for your own healing and the sh- what you hope others get out of it. Oh, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> worst part, the worst part about being a musician is the desire to share it. And um, that is what brings about the vulnerability and the insecurity and the criticism, the external judgment, um, 
like putting myself out there is it's so uncomfortable and I really hate being misunderstood and I hate being judged like who doesn't but um at the same time I just have this strong strong drive or impetus to like share things that I'm interested in share who I am share what you know what I've gone through to try to um metabolize my own experience and on a collective level like these are just things in me that need to come out otherwise I feel I feel like I'm gonna explode but having to share is like for me I feel like the most beta thing (laughs) like (laughs) I don't want to share I don't I don't want to like you know I don't want to I don't want to be the person that's tweeting about Elon Musk you know but I have this impulse to want to participate in a collective conversation and um at the risk of looking like a moron sometimes or being judged for my music or art or ideas and I guess that's just like the price you pay but hopefully like what I put out there can be either soothing to somebody mutative to somebody else um I just hope it's received and can be digested by other people because that's how I really connect with other people. I'm not um, a very social person. So this is my social, social work (laughs) is music. (laughs) No, that's lovely. I think it's like, I sense this tension between the desire to return back to that space in which the women, you know, gather in the home and sing while they, they weave at the loom or sing while they, do some sort of whatever and and the acknowledgement that we don't live in a society that encourages that anymore it's again just kind of commenting on your bravery because you you simultaneously acknowledge you're not going to get that but you're willing to push for it and try anyway yeah i mean it's all you can do yeah, that really. I mean, that's Saturn lesson, right? I mean, what else can right? you do? Um, it is what it is, but you yeah. know. Well, trying to think if I have any last questions. I think I've asked you everything we we talked about previous. So I normally do end the podcast by asking my guest if there's anything that. I didn't ask them that they wanted to share anything that you might be like remissed if we get off call and we haven't talked about or just anything along those lines. No, I mean, I've already said too much. So (laughs) have you? (laughs) Well, just in, in, um, in relating to the thing that I just said where, my my drive to share is met with like the shame of having to share. So um, I'm probably good. Yeah, I mean, that's very Saturnal. <laughs> Please don't perceive yeah. me, but also take everything that I say very seriously. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a Capricorn? Uh, my Saturn is all from the Aquarius. I have, a, oh. a, I do have a Venus in Capricorn though. I do. Yes. My Venus is there. Oh. So. The Aquarian Saturn vibe is fascinating. It, it is eccentric. <laughs> it is very <Yeah>. eccentric. <laughs> I love it. 
Well, that's like my my juxtaposition between the two is like I feel like Aquarius likes to view things from the top down and Capricorn likes to build things from the bottom up. So that's like that differentiation between Saturn as an air sign and Saturn as an earth sign. Um, It's also, I think, why Aquarians are not known for making nearly as much money as Capricorns are. (laughs) Oh, man, I wish wish my my Capricorn stellium's not working hard enough for me. I know. Sometimes I want to shake my fist at the lot caster like, you promised. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Then he's like, wait, but value is found in other abstractions besides just money. I'm yeah, like, very Shit, Saturn, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're more collective minded. So that's good. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Saturn placements make for good uh political theorists, for better or for worse. <laughs> oh man, good riddance. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. <laughs> I do I do actually have one last question if you if you don't mind. Yeah. Um I'm I'm thinking about what you said about sound vibrating through the body and that like bodily catharsis. I myself have found that to be work that is very magical. Um just like expression of sound and movement through the body as ritualistic trance do you have any commentaries on like using that sort of thing as something more than just emotional catharsis like do you use it ritualistically as well um yes in i probably in several ways but the one that i can think of right now is i uh i practice rinzai zen buddhism and there's a lot of chanting in that and so i would go to sashin and do do a lot of chanting and one day at the um we were having like the discussion with the with roshi and we were talking about just chanting as a means of you know ritualistic resonance you know the all these resonating bodies coming together and and um performing these these chants is it's also used in kabbalah i think um chanting yes. um and um and some d- different consonants and vowels are very healing or energetically stimulating in a way. And um, that's what, again, keeps me so in love with music and sound is that it is just beyond our scope. Like there is something very magical just about even the act of humming or chanting. Oh man, I agree with that completely. Even just down to like ohm being the primordial sound, the primordial vibration. Yeah. It's it's wild. <laughs> it's it really it trips me out as someone that just grew up singing and then really reflecting on that and being like, wow, singing in and humming and chanting. It's just OK. So then I'll say also like um, I sing like uh, habitually, like compulsively. And um, it is a self-soothing thing for me. Um, so l- it's less of a, an emotional catharsis and more of like a physical one to sometimes just like resonate my body <laughs> with with sound um so it's it's just yeah never ending <laughs> <laughs>